Well, this has been a, a long week for all of us. It has been a, an emotional week for all of us. And it is right and appropriate to be sad and grieve. As humans, we are emotional beings. When Jesus came to the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, we read in John 11.35 only two words. Two small words as if nothing else could be said. John 11.35 just says, Jesus wept. So we are emotional beings. Yet, while sorrow and grief are a part of this life, there's no one-size-fits-all template on how we grieve. Each does it in his or her own way. Each does it in his or her own time. But there's something different about, about the sorrow of the Christian. There's something different about the grieving of the Christian, and it's evident to those who see. Les told me that after the funeral, while we were all standing outside, the undertaker told him that real Christian weddings, uh, weddings, real Christian funerals are the easiest to do. So here's a man who spent his, his, his life dealing with death. Those who are grieving, those who are sad, and yet he sees something. He, he notices that death for this group over here who claim to be Christians is very different than this group over here. Now, what is it? Well, it's hope. It's hope. For the believer, there is actual hope in the midst of what to our eyes seem to be final. J.I. Packer says it this way, quote, What does the Bible give us that secular theory cannot match? In a word, hope. Hope understood not in the weak sense of optimistic whistling in the dark, but in the strong sense of certainty about what is coming because God himself has promised it. That is why it is different. That is why it is different. That is why the undertaker can say it's easier to do real Christian funerals. This past week, I saw an article titled, What Happens at a Happy Funeral? Many things were included, such as playing jazz music, planting a tree, shooting off fireworks, and releasing butterflies. But at the end of the day, the music stops, you leave the tree, the fireworks cease, and the butterflies fly away. It's all momentary. It's all momentary. It is not a real and enduring hope. And so for just a little bit this morning, I want to turn your attention to the Apostle Paul and, and what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. And so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn so, so that you can see the words with your own eyes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, well, let's begin with what he says in verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Sleep is a, a metaphor that's often used throughout Scripture for those who have died. Jesus, Jesus himself used this meta- metaphor of Lazarus. We read in John 11, 11 to 14, after saying these things, he, that is Jesus, said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. So so Paul here is, is talking about those who have died, and he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as as others do who have no hope. Notice that he doesn't say that you may not grieve, period. He doesn't say that. Paul is not some stoic where the emotional impact of the loss of a loved one is denied. He says you will grieve, but not like those around you. Those around you do not have hope, But you do. You grieve with hope. Your sorrow is filled with hope. Your tears fall not into the pool of despair, but into the ocean of hope. But tears will fall. And just like J.I. Packer said, this hope is rooted in a sense of certainty because of what God has done and because of what he has promised. So look at verse 14 now. And see how Paul grounds this hopeful grieving, not in some vapid optimism, but in Christ. He says, for, now you remember that word from last week, we saw that many times, this this for is providing support uh, for the claim just made. So believers grieve when they lose a loved one as those who have hope, and here is why that can happen. Here is why that is true. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in this way also, God, through Jesus, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so our hope is rooted in the fact that Jesus died too. But death was not his master. It could not contain him. He was raised up, alive again. Not not as a ghost, not as a, a zombie, but as the first fruits of a new creation. He was raised with a physical new body. And so Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You, you can see the same type of terminology there that we, that we see here in 1 Thessalonians 4, right? He has been raised from the dead, right? That's true. Many saw him, they touched him, they ate with him, they have seen him. So what does this mean? 
But Paul goes on to say in verses 22 to 23, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. You grieve with hope because Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, that means if you have lost someone that you love who has believed in Christ, who has belonged to him, they too shall be raised from the dead. And like Jesus, they shall be given new bodies to live forever on a new earth, never to die again. It is all rooted in what God has done in Christ. And so the words of the psalmist come flooding back to our minds. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, the anchor of my hope in the sea of sorrow. But then Paul grounds this with another four in verse 15. And he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For, now let me stop right there, because that word for is a different word than all the other fours, and that's really unhelpful in English. Um, And that's why I'm not stopping there. This four is more like because. So verse 16, because, or for, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So when does all this happen? It will happen when Christ returns. And notice this trifle description of his coming. He will descend from heaven with a a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. This is not going to be a quiet, secret event. This is the public announcement that the king is coming. He is on his way. In theology, you often hear this term parousia, which is usually defined as Christ's second coming. But it was a word that was known in the ancient world. It's a a word that just means presence as opposed to absence. It was used to describe when the emperor or another um, dignitary, high-ranking visitor was coming to visit a city. And when word reached that he was near, dignitaries and people from the city would run out to meet him. And they would march with him in his triumphal entry back into the city. And that's the imagery that Paul is using here. The king of kings is coming. The dead will be raised to join him in his triumphal march. And then those who are alive at that time who belong to him, they will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord, not to be taken away secretly to heaven. No, but to march with them in his entry as the king returns to the earth. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 24, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. And so when Christ returns, when he comes, the dead will be raised with new creational bodies, Those who are alive will meet with them, having been changed in the twinkling of an eye. 
and all of God's people will accompany the king as he takes his throne. And Paul can now bring this whole thing to a close in verse 18. After all that he said, this is what he writes, therefore, after all of this, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Remember, this whole passage has been primarily about not grieving like those who have no hope, because you have hope. This has been about hopeful sorrow. You have hope in the midst of loss because as certain as Christ was raised, so too in the same way will Christ's people be raised. And not only will they be raised, but they will join the king upon his return. And those who are alive, they will see, and they will be changed, and they will join him as well. And so while death seems to be the final say, while, while death seems to be lost, Paul is calling us to look ahead and to realize that those who have fallen asleep in Christ get victory in the end. Death loses Christ wins, and victory belongs to every person who has trusted in Christ, even if they have passed away before that time. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. One day Christ will return. I don't know when, but when he does, Stephen will be standing behind him, along with the myriads and myriads of other Christians throughout the ages, and the song of victory will be flowing from their mouths. And you too will join in. You too will follow in that train, but you must believe. You must trust in Christ alone. And when you have a people, a church, who believes this, whose conviction is that this is actually true, and thus they grieve as those who do have a hope, you end up with funerals where the atmosphere is unlike anything else. Where people who are accustomed to breathing in despair for a brief moment have their lungs filled with hope. Gospel hope. And it may be that that one breath is what God uses to change hearts. And we ought to pray to that end. We ought to pray to that end. So we can sit here this morning in hope, confident that God will do what he has said he will do. Now, because the past week, two weeks have been such a, a whirlwind, we may not have had time to really reflect on all that has happened. And so with the rest of our, our time this morning, I just want to offer you a few reflections of my own, a few observations that I've been thinking about over the past couple days. First, as I mentioned during the, the, the prayer time, between people actually present in this building and those watching Stephen's funeral online, there were about 450 people watching that funeral live. That's a lot of people. That's astounding. That, that's, that's quite an impact. 
That is a testament to how Stephen lived, that he was able to reach into the lives of so many people. But men, no matter how highly esteemed, no matter how well-loved, no matter how impactful their life had been, are just still men. If the Lord does not return, we too will all go the way of mankind. This is why our hope is not rooted in people. Mortal men and women cannot anchor eternal hope. The psalmist says in Psalm 146, verses 3 to 4, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his plans perish. And so the best of men are indeed just men at best. You must always keep your eyes on Christ. Fix them on Him, because pastors will come and go. I am not guaranteed to be here next Sunday. Les is not guaranteed to be here next month. And if the Lord should take us, because we too are men, will you falter? Will you fail? Not if your eyes are fixed on Christ. He is the only immovable rock in this life, and He is our hope. Second, our faith ought to be strengthened as we observed Stephen's faithfulness up until the very end, and to strive for that in our own lives. Let me read to you these words from Acts 20. In Acts 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of Ephesus, and he knows that, that this is going to be the last time that he ever sees them. And he says, beginning in verse 22, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, there are three things Paul says in there that I think are directly related to Stephen's last days and ought to be an encouragement to us. First, faithfulness is better than certainty. Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me. He was faithful to his calling even though he didn't know how it was going to end. That is where God was bringing him. That is where he was going. From the moment that the diagnosis of cancer came until the very end, Stephen didn't waver. He didn't know how it was going to end. He didn't know what would happen to him, but he knew that is where God had placed him and he faithfully followed. Secondly, faithfulness is better than freedom from suffering. 
Paul was faithful through the trials that lay ahead. He says in verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. What do you value more? Faithlessness with freedom or faithfulness through suffering? Paul knew that was coming. He may not have known everything. He may not know how it was going to end, but he knew that was coming. In every city, imprisonment awaits me. In every city, affliction and trial and suffering and persecution. Where is the moment that Paul says, you know what, enough of this. Why put myself through this? I've only got one life to live. I'm going to give myself the best life I can and be as comfortable as I can. He never says that. Faithfulness is better than an easy life. Faithfulness is better than freedom from pain. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5, 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Do you rejoice in your suffering? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see, do you see how we've come full circle here? Paul says that the ultimate product of suffering is hope. And, and not just any hope, but a certain hope, one that will not put you to shame because it is grounded in God, in his love evidenced by the giving of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. I know that there were times when Stephen was in great pain, so much so that the doctors are telling him, look, you have to take your pain medication. It had to get under control. But even in the midst of that, he never said, is this what God has given me after all this? No. It was always faithfulness. It was, tell the church, God is in control. Third, faithfulness is better than life. Paul says in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In Job 2, Satan comes before the Lord and he says, skin for skin, All that a man has, he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Job didn't. Paul didn't. Stephen didn't. Why? Because faithfulness was better than life. Gripped by Jesus, this is how believers live and this is how believers die. 
In the second century, there was a man by the name of Polycarp, a man that history says was a disciple of the Apostle John. And by the mid-100s, he was a very, very old man. One day, Roman soldiers came to his house, arrested him, brought Polycarp before the proconsul, and the proconsul told him, look, all you have to do is recant, deny Jesus, and you can go. This is Polycarp's answer. He says, for 86 years I have served him. How can I deny my king who saved me? Faithfulness was better than life. And so they tied him to a stake and they lit the fire. We can all learn from these men. We can still learn from Stephen because one day you too will be looking death in the face. And if you truly believe that you are held in the hands of a sovereign God and that Christ has rescued you, then you too can say with Paul, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish the course and to finish it faithfully. Third reflection here, Christ will build his church. The church exists, this church, this church exists because God used Stephen to bring about his purposes. Yes, Stephen labored, and yes, he labored well, but it is God, through the preaching of his word, by the power of his Holy Spirit, that opens blind eyes. Stephen could not open a single blind eye. I cannot open a single blind eye. Our job is to preach God's word, just as your job is to share God's word, to share the gospel, and then to leave it with God. In Matthew 16, after Peter makes this confession of faith, Jesus says in verse 18, on this rock, I will build my church. This church belongs to Christ. Stephen was a temporary under-shepherd, just as I am, just as Les is, and just as everyone who comes after us will be, until the day that our great shepherd comes. Fourth and lastly, I want to read to you from the end of Pilgrim's Progress. In order to get to the gate of the celestial city, Hopeful and Christian had to pass through this river. And this river was death. It symbolized death. They had to pass through death, it, this river. It was the only way to get there. And this is what Bunyan writes. He says, Now I further saw that between them and the gate was a river, but there was no bridge to pass over it, and, and the river was very deep. At the side of this river, the pilgrims were bewildered. But the men said to them, you must go through the river or you cannot enter in at the gate. The pilgrims then, especially Christian, began to lose heart. They looked this way and that, but they could find no way by which they might escape the river. Then they asked the men if the waters were all the same depth. depth. No, they replied, you shall find it deeper or shallower just as you believe in the king of the city. The pilgrims then approached the water Upon entering it, Christian began to sink. 
Crying out to his good friend, Hopeful, he shouted, I'm sinking in deep waters. The billows are rolling over my head. All the waves are washing over me. Then Hopeful replied, Take courage, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. Christian then cried out, Oh, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land which flows with milk and honey. With that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see ahead of him. He also in great measure lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor talk coherently of any of those sweet refreshments which he had met with along the way of his pilgrimage. But all the words that he spoke still tended to manifest his horror of mind and heart fears that he would die in that river and never obtain entrance at the gate. Hopeful, therefore, labored hard to keep his brother's head above water. Yes, sometimes Christian almost drowned, but then in a short time, he would surface again, half dead. Hopeful would also endeavor to encourage him by saying, Brother, I see the gate and men are standing ready to receive us. But Christian would answer, It is you, it is you they're waiting for. You have been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so have you, responded Hopeful. Ah, brother, cried Christian. Surely if I were right with him, then he would now arise to help me. Because of my sins, he has brought me into this snare and has left me. Hopeful reminded him, these troubles and distresses that you are going through in these waters are no indication that God has forsaken you. Rather, they are only sent to test you as to whether you will call to mind what you have hitherto received of his goodness and live upon him in your present distress. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was deep in thought for a while. Hopeful then added this word, take courage, Christ Jesus makes you whole. With that, Christian cried out with a loud voice, oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. Then they both took courage. After that, the enemy was still as stone and could no longer hinder them. Christian therefore felt firm ground to stand upon and found that the rest of the river was but shallow. Thus they both crossed over the river. My friend, Stephen has passed through the river. And whether he was your pastor for 30 years or just one year, he has gone before you. But you too will have to pass through this river. And if I may be allowed to speak on behalf of Stephen, to give you one final word of encouragement, one final lesson from him, standing on the other side of the river, I think Stephen would say to you all, take courage, my brother. Take courage, my sister. I feel the bottom, and it is good. Take courage. Jesus Christ makes you whole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how would you thank you that your word is true, your word is certain, And so when you say 
that Christ is coming and one day the dead will be raised? Let it be written on our hearts and our minds that it will be. And Lord, let that bring about hope in our souls. Lord, even though we are sorrowful, even though we grieve, Lord, we do so with hope, with eternal hope, rooted in an anchor that cannot be moved by any storm that comes our way. Let us cling to that. How we do thank you for this church that you have established through your servant, Stephen. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to build up this place. That you would build it up for the glory of Christ. And we pray that you would not let anyone here put their hope in this life or the next, in anything that I do, in anything that Les does, in anything that Stephen has done, but that they would see that our hope is in you as well. Let us cling to him. Let us cling to the cross to find forgiveness there and to know that there is so, such abundant reason to hope. And when it is our time to cross that river, help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful that we may say we have finished the course, we have fought the fight, and that we await our, our reward, that we await to see our king, our prize, to bask in his glory forever and ever, and help those who don't yet understand, who can't yet see it, to open their eyes, Lord. Open their eyes to see the reality of what is going on around us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna stand.